when you're climbing something difficult, all these philosophical questions are garbage because you have to concentrate so hard on what you're doing. If you do anything wrong, you could die. You know that. That's filed away in the back of your mind. So your entire focus is on not doing anything wrong. Yes. And in order to do that, everything else has to go away. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to Farewelling. I'm just jazzed today because we're coming to you from Carmichael, California, and I am at the home of a truly inspiring woman, so we are all in for quite a treat. My guest for today's episode is Deirdre Walnick, and basically she is a real-life superhero. She's a retired college professor who speaks eight languages, an accomplished musician, and most recently the author of a wonderful memoir called The Sharp End of Life, which is the story of her personal transformation later in life from earthbound wife, mother, and academic to marathon runner and record-setting extreme climber. In 2017, she became, at age 66 people, the oldest woman ever to summit the monstrous 3,000-foot rock face that is Yosemite's El Capitan. Now, what's also fascinating is that she climbed El Cap alongside her son, who happens to be Alex Honnold, indisputably the world's greatest free solo climber and subject of the movie Free Solo. Deirdre, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So we've just had some snacks. <laughs> yes, we have. As we often do. Some yummy snacks. And I stopped off in nearby Davis, California and picked up this tasty treat. It's a, it's a strawberry bread and it's, it's delightful with the coffee it's that you really made. It's really good. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for having us to your beautiful home. Let's get right into this. I mentioned your thrilling and I might add daunting climbing achievement. <laughs> daunting is a good word for it. <laughs> yes, quite. But I want to back up just a little bit and ask you to first tell us about what your life was like before you started distance running and, and scaling the country's most intimidating peaks. Let's start with your, your childhood, because in the book you talk about kind of having a lack of connection mm. or not being heard by your parents. And I was just wondering mm. if you could say a little bit about that. Well, that was a old Eastern European version of child raising was, you know, children were to be seen and not heard. Yeah. And basically, uh, I had no voice in anything. Parents decided everything for everybody, and, and that's the way it was. Our only job was to obey. Yeah. I mean, I grew up basically without normal human role models in my life, mm -hmm. you know? And I was kind of stuck at home because it was my duty to help take care of my mother. I mean, she, I was her arms and legs, you know, I couldn't really rebel much yeah. she needed me yeah you know so I just damped all that pushed it to the side and despite that you were an independent thinker and maybe well, I was but I had to hide that I wasn't allowed to be so I shut that down at home and then you kind of like a lot of women at that time got sort of corralled into mm -hmm. the life mm -hmm. of you know home and family mm -hmm. you you met a man you you got married you found yourself in a situation where at first you know Things were really, really great, mm -hmm. but then over time, it, it seemed like there was some sort of a problem in terms of oh, the yeah. marriage. Big problem. <laughs> it's a long story, but you know, we were both traveling when we met, and we were living in Southern California, traveling kind of, and then we traveled to Japan, and everything mm -hmm. was fine, and, and then when the traveling stopped, 
my husband sort of shut down. I did bring along a short passage from your book. Mm -hmm. I just found mm -hmm. this passage that you wrote about your wedding day to be very moving, and I was mm. wondering if you wouldn't mind just, just reading it for us. Okay, I will. This is from The Sharp End of Life. Charlie and I left in a rush after the reception to drive to New York. From there, we set off on a honeymoon in the Caribbean islands. We quickly changed our clothes in the large room where we had stored our suitcases and dashed out to the waiting car, driven by friends from out west who were on the same flight. I didn't understand what had just happened. I knew it was the end, but of what, I wasn't sure. I was just beginning to comprehend the devastating absence of connection that my parents had taught me to live by, but I still didn't understand how that would affect the rest of my life. In the car, glimpses of what I had lost and what that loss might mean began to crash over me wave after wave. It felt as if I had just left a funeral, not a wedding. Wow. Wow, indeed. <laughs> oh. What a wedding day. <laughs> yes. And yet, it seemed to me from reading the book, and of course, I, I don't want to give away too many things, but that you are a, a woman of resilience and yes. fortitude and, and commitment, and you continually rededicated yourself to your family. You did have two children, mm -hmm. your daughter, Stacia, and we mentioned Alex. So you, you were married for years and mm -hmm. years until basically your children had grown up. Right. And then you decided at a certain point that it just had, had to, enough. Yeah. you'd had enough. And, and you did get divorced. Right. Of course, um, you probably should add that as soon as I got divorced, he died. Yes. Can that you changed talk about everything. That? Yeah, yes. That kind of changed so everything. it was literally within... The same month. Yeah. Same month. It was very weird. He fell over from a massive heart attack, running from one airplane to another. He was oh. late, you know, his plane was late. And so he ran, and he had a weak heart anyway. So he just fell over dead. Those two horrible things were preceded by my father dying and, and uh, the year before that, and Charlie's father dying, and my mother. It was just one thing after another after another for like six years, seven years. I never had a moment's respite. Mm. Never had a moment to myself because I was handling three houses on the East Coast that I had to do something with. <laughs> and working. And working full time. And raising and children. house on the West Coast. Yeah. Feel something with. Uh, it was crazy, crazy. I was doing the work of six people every day. So you started off on a new adventure, a yeah. new life. First, you, you started running. And you, you would run a little bit with your dog, and you got a little stronger, and both of your children encouraged you mm -hmm. in that. And I was wondering if in doing that, and then also in pursuing climbing, were you doing those activities purely as an outlet for like, okay, I'd like to do something healthy, and my family does these things? Or were you, were you consciously doing them as a way to become closer to your children? A little bit of both. The running, I went to work every day. I taught my eight hours or whatever at the college. I'd come home, change my clothes, go, go to the office and do all the estate work. And then I would, out of self-defense, mm -hmm. <laughs> physical self-defense, I, I would take the dog for a long walk. Mm. And the dog was big and powerful. It was an Alaskan sled dog, a Malamute. Okay. And so I would, follow, I would let the dog drag me through the neighborhood. And then little by little, I'd start jogging with her. And I felt so good. It was a physical release after mm -hmm. a day like that. I'm a pretty physical kind of person. I like to go, go, go. But I wasn't allowed to. So... I 
used the dog as my excuse mm. and uh, got back into it. So you had started to kind of get into some great shape with running. Yeah. And you you have run a few marathons, actually. I did. Four. Do you feel like more invincible? Like, do you feel like, okay, I did that oh, now, yeah. I can kind oh, of yeah. do anything? Once I started upping the mileage in my running, I could do anything. When I put on my running shoes, I knew that I could do anything. This is why I like to encourage people to do things that are outside their comfort zone. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Because you this just- This was all so far outside my comfort zone that crazy. Especially the climbing bit. Because, you know, I knew, quote unquote, that I was afraid of heights. But what I didn't know was that it's not the height itself that you're afraid of. It's the falling off the height. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so once you're Good on point. a rope and you know you can't fall off it, well, that goes away. For me, like what's so fascinating about that activity is being on that edge of death when you're on the face of a rock and you are both being extremely close to it, but you're also using every single resource, capability, skill, mm -hmm. strength, mm -hmm. dexterity, everything you've got to keep yourself on that rock. Mm -hmm. So I was just wondering about that line. How much do you think about that, you know, when you're actually up on... Well, when you're climbing something difficult, all these philosophical questions are garbage. I mean, they don't exist. Because you have to concentrate so hard on what you're doing. If you do anything wrong, you could die. You know that. That's filed away in the back of your mind. So... Your entire focus is on not doing anything wrong. Yes. And in order to do that, everything else has to go away. And so that's total mindfulness, really. Exactly. Exactly. That's what I love about climbing. It's all about total mindfulness. Exactly. It's like you've never been more in the moment. And if you're in that moment and executing perfectly, you can't think about all that other stuff. You just can't. And you think about it later when you say, holy, what did we just do? You know, then you think about it. It's not a thrill-seeking sport at all. It's not an adrenaline sport at all. Like Alex has said many times, if you're getting a rush out of it, you're not doing it right and hmm. something bad's going to happen. A lot of people who either have seen the movie or are certainly in the book, you mentioned that he doesn't tell you, right. for example, when oh, he's no, going to... Oh, no, free soloists never tell anybody that they're going to do a free solo. Yeah. No. That would destroy the mindfulness. And can you just, for any listeners who... I can't believe they live under a rock, yeah, um, that yeah. they don't know what free soloing is. Free Could you solo. just explain what it is? Free solo, there, there are many, many types of climbing. Free solo means that you're climbing with no protection, no rope, no harness, no nothing, no safety gear of any kind. Just you and the rock. The only nod to safety is the shoes they wear. Mm -hmm. You know, the shoes have sticky rubber on the bottom, you have more traction. And that's but, Alex's specialty. It's his specialty. It's what he's known for. Mm -hmm. To be fair, I mean, free soloing is maybe 1% of his entire climbing. Okay. But it's the 1% that everybody notices. Well, for everybody obvious wants reason. To see. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. The only climbing that I've ever done in my life was at like a regular old gym. Okay. Where you just have like, I don't even know how tall it's probably yeah, like 20 feet. Fake walls I was terrified. <laughs> I was 100% terrified. I had the ropes well, that's on. That's you have good sense. I had a person <laughs> standing down there and there was literally no chance of my being hurt. The main job of climbing is to mitigate the risks. If you know you're doing a good job up there, you're not worried about risk because you have taken care of most of those risks as, as much as you can. But when you step up to the wall, let's say you're getting ready, you've put on your equipment, mm -hmm. you know, it's a beautiful day, you're about to just take your first steps. Is there anything you say to yourself? <laughs> I basically talk myself up to the wall. 
especially on El Cap. Holy cow, did I talk myself off the wall? <laughs> especially when I was practicing alone to do that. Do you ever feel afraid? Oh, oh heck yeah. <laughs> oh, heck yeah. If you're paying attention, there's some fear, of course. I mean, you're a thousand feet up, hanging over the abyss. And yeah, I think you course. said somewhere in the book that once you're at a certain point, at least on certain rocks, like once you get to a certain place, like there's no... Point like, of no return. Yeah, yeah. you well, just got to keep, you're going up. The only way off the rock is up. Yeah. I guess that's a good sort of motivation because you're just like... <laughs> well, yeah, that, that was good motivation for me because by the time I got to like two or three pitches below the top of El Cap, I was done. Totally done. And Wasted. how long did that take? The whole thing? Yeah. <laughs> we did El Cap in a day, which is very unusual. Most climbers, even the elite climbers, take four to five days on the route that we did. <laughs> we did it in 13 hours up and six hours down. Wow. Crazy. If I had known what I know now, back then when I was trying to do this, I, I would have, I don't know if I would have done it. <laughs> you can't imagine these things until you actually But a lot of the best it. things in life happen like that, right, where right. if you had all the information going right. into it. Right. If only I'd known. No, maybe not. I wouldn't have done it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and something else that you do talk about is that you came to an understanding as you became more intimately involved with climbing that, you know, once you are sort of up there at those heights and experiencing all of that, all of that life, right? Because it's a very full expression yeah, of life. it's all encompassing, yeah, yeah. And then to come back down, you know, and have to, like, take the garbage cans out to yeah, the curb yeah, or... Yeah, I don't know how Alex does it. I really don't. It's very... I'm not deflating exactly to be down in your normal life, you know, especially for weekend climbers. You know, Alex lives up there. So when he comes down and has to pay his bills and sweep his house, that's not real life to him. I'm Deirdre Walnick, and you're listening to Farewelling, the podcast. I did want to know if either of you and or your daughter have ever talked about what any of you would want. Should, I mean, forget about climbing. Like, mm -hmm, should anything mm -hmm. happen? Just in real life. Yeah, just for any reason. Mm -hmm. Years ago, after the dust settled from all those, you know, that six, seven years of ridiculousness of writing estate documents and all that stuff, I actually did sit down and, and went, you know, got a lawyer and, and set up a revocable living trust. And in that, everything is spelled out. Because I learned firsthand how awful it can be if somebody just keels over dead suddenly and has nothing planned. It was a nightmare. It was a huge nightmare. And I, I never wanted to do that to my kids, you know. So, yeah, all it takes is a little planning, and then it's, everything's planned, and you don't have to worry about that for the rest of your life. It's not a hard process at all. People fear this. I don't know why. I mean, it's, it's not any harder to, than going to school or taking an exam or, or yeah. you know, whatever. Well, I think it's the combination of paperwork plus death. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's things. true. That's true. Most people don't think about death. But if you don't think about it, everybody else suffers for that lack of preparation. Have you seen any change since growing up in New York as you did in a different time were attitudes toward death different then, like oh, in heck terms yeah. of... Oh, goodness, yes. I grew up in a European environment. New York was mostly European back then. And, of course, my family was Polish. 
all four grandparents were from Poland. And it was their approach is totally practical. And everybody dies. You have to be ready. You have to know what to do. Everything should be in order, you know. We always went to pay our respects at the funeral home, and, and there they were, lying there. You know, you had to touch their hair and touch their hand and, and say goodbye. Mm. Nowadays, you don't get to say goodbye. And that's such a lack. That's such a, a void in our society. You don't get, there's no closure. Mm-hmm. Closure is very important. Yeah, and it's, it's true. Now, things are right. swept away. Right. So we don't have to right. deal with all it's, that, that it's messiness. It's nicened up. Yeah. Yes. And death is not nice. And there's no two ways around it. But it happens to everybody. If you, you know, tidy it up like that and keep it behind, mm-hmm. you close the casket or not even have a casket or whatever. And my husband's family was like that. They, they lost many, many family members while I was married to him. Not a single funeral, not a single ceremony of closure of any kind, not a tear shed. <laughs> this was totally alien to me. Hmm. And it should be alien yes. to everybody. Right? Agreed. These are moments that we these share. Important moments. Yeah. It's our yeah. These are at the core of who we are as humans. Right. It's a part right. of the, right. the continuum. You know. You that... Celebrate when you come into the world together. You know, and you should celebrate together when you leave the world. Yeah. We've given that up. You know, when a kid is born. Big to do, you know. Everybody celebrates oh and come together. Oh my gosh! On the first birthday party, giant party. Like. And I'm not, I'm not saying you should party when somebody no. dies, but, but that's what they used to do. And Irish wakes. People, Irish exactly. wakes are so happy. And honestly, Polish wakes are so happy. They're, they're parties basically. But I'm actually glad that you said that. You're not sure that you should party because I'm not saying that everybody wants to party or that when mm-hmm. someone loses that they would want to. But for mm-hmm. some people. A party is absolutely the right thing. Yeah, well, let's not even call it a party. A get-together. And a celebration of that person's life. Exactly. You know, you celebrate in the spirit of them. But it has to be at the time of passing. Mm -hmm. I mean, like in my husband's family, they did that too, but it was a year later. Mm. Well, it's it's over then. Yeah, and life has moved We've dealt with it by by then. (laughs) It's not the same at all. If someone out there is listening to this podcast right now and they're at a transition point in their own life, you know, sometimes people have a tendency to think, oh, well, now's not the time. That's for young people or that's... It's always the time, darn it. It's always the time. You want to go do something, go do it. Life is so short. You're not going to get a second chance. You want to go climb El Cap? Go climb El Cap. You want to get a diploma? Go for it. You want to learn to ski? Go for it. It doesn't matter. I mean, age is just a number. It's meaningless. And it also, like... You want to become when, a runner at 55? Go for it. <laughs> yes. Even if you are have some infirmities or some little foibles that, you know, mm. set you back a bit, you can still do other you can do things. So, exactly. It doesn't do have to be, else. you know, right. the hugest thing. It can be something very small, right. but something that you've right. always wanted to do. Right. Do you have a bucket list of things that you want to do? Well, uh, my bucket list for next year was to travel abroad for the first time, and I'm actually flying to Italy tomorrow, so... You're ahead yeah. of schedule. I'm That's doing amazing. That. And I did it for work, so it's all free. Oh, wow. <laughs> I want to go to Thailand very bad. Most of my, my bucket list are places. Okay. So Thailand, for sure, Australia, and New Zealand. What's on your bucket list? I have many bucket lists. Okay. And. Life is too short. <laughs> Just not enough hours in the week. For the climbing side of my life, I've been climbing abroad several places. You know, I've climbed in Greece and France, Mexico, Canada. And everywhere you go on the planet, the rock is a little bit different. Mm. 
and the cultures are different. You know, I'm a linguist and I've taught languages all my life and I love that aspect of travel. And so to go travel somewhere else is, combines my two loves, mm. you know, the climbing, the exploring new kinds of rock and getting a little better at this or that. And so I want to climb internationally a lot more and I want to up my uh, leading game. I'm not much of a lead climber yet because I'm a mom and I still have that, I don't want to call it a fault, but I still think like a mom or grandmother, and, you know, I'm, and I'm afraid to just go for it and leap for that hold. And, and you know, I, so I'm working on that. But isn't that why you named the book The Sharp End? Yes, it's a climbing term. And the person leading the climb, the first person up, they say that he or she is on the sharp end of the rope because if you take a fall or have any mishap on the sharp end of the rope, the consequences are harsher than if you're belaying on the ground, belaying mm. from below or even bullying from above. And so the sharp end refers to that. And my entire life has been on the sharp end mm. um, until now, you know. And now I'm getting a little more control of who I am and what I love. So that's one of the things. I want to continue climbing abroad a little bit more. I want to get back to painting. Mm, I miss right. painting terribly. I, I used to, you know, earn money at it. But you need a place to set up and you, you need a lot of time. And I haven't had either of those for a long time. Hmm. And I would love to get back to performing on the piano. I used to do recitals and stuff. I'm sensing a pattern here, which is all the things <laughs> that you really like to do are things that are very much challenges. They, yes. are, oh, they yes. require oh, yes. training. Definitely. They require detailed attention right. and a sort of long relationship. Well, long haul. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I need like four lifetimes to get them all done. Amen. Just not fair. Not enough hours. In the I week. wish you. I wish you nine lifetimes, just so you have <laughs> some you. extra for anything else you might find that you want to accomplish, because Thanks. you have already done so so much. Mm. And and of course, I want to write more books too. That's extremely time consuming. Well, what we didn't even mention thus far, since we both love the French language, is that you also have a French yes. language college yes. level textbook yes. that you wrote. Mm -hmm. This thing is huge, people. That's yeah. just another. This came out this month. My newest baby. I mean, it's one thing to speak a language. It's another thing to write a textbook to mm -hmm. each other how mm -hmm. to speak it. So kudos to you on all of these accomplishments. And Deirdre Walnick, thank you so much for this incredible conversation, for having us here. Thank you in your for home. having me. And everybody, I just want to say that if you would like to see more and read more about Deirdre Walnick and find out where you can get her new book, The Sharp End of Life, A Mother's Story. Visit us at myfarewelling.com. We'll have some extra content. Maybe Deirdre will let us take a few pictures of her paintings so we could put one or two up there sure. and give you a sense of all of the things that this incredible woman does. Thanks for listening to this episode of Farewelling. Hey, if you like the podcast, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And why not share it with your friends too? 